This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Restrooms on wheels. It's a concept Denver's been trying for about a year and a half now. One of these bathroom trailers was parked recently near the 16th Street Mall. It's bright blue with the Denver City logo and the words public restroom. The bathroom attendant is John Atencio. He has a few responsibilities, primarily cleaning. If I see it's, you know, they made a mess, I'll get the bleach and do the top of the, the toilet, do the floor, clean everything, uh, bleach the sink, try to kill all the germs. The trailer has three stalls, one big enough for a wheelchair, each with its own toilet and sink. The unit's connected to a water tank and generator. Atencio takes great pride in the work, cleaning up after just about everyone who comes in. Excuse me, how was the bathroom? Good. Clean. Limpia, clean in Spanish. He asks people other questions like why they're downtown, their age, zip code. It's part of his job tracking use for the city to analyze. In 2015, Denver officials saw a need for more public restrooms after complaints of public urination and defecation. So in March of last year, they deployed these trailers. Public Works spokeswoman Nancy Kuhn. Just like we provide street lights and we provide benches, um, makes sense to have this type of infrastructure too. The city leases the two trailers for a total of about $30,000 a month, which also covers the attendance. The unit we visited has moved to another spot. You see, Denver is trying to figure out where it's best to build permanent restrooms, and these mobile units help them do that. The city won't lease them forever. Denver at-large city council member Robin Kanich has been a champion of this effort, which has caught the attention of other cities. And welcome to the program. So glad to be here. Thank you. So nearly a year and a half into this, what's been the biggest takeaway? I think the biggest takeaway is the diversity of users. We see visitors, employees, commuters, folks who are enjoying nightlife, as well as those who are really struggling in our community and maybe don't have a place to live. I think some folks thought that the restroom was just for those folks, but what we're seeing is it really is all walks of life. It's something we all share in common. Are are you surprised? In other words, did you think that perhaps mostly homeless individuals would be using these restrooms? I don't think we were surprised because we really researched the best practices across the country. And what we learned is restrooms are most successful when they're located where there are multiple users. So both in downtown and in Colfax, we were choosing intentionally areas that had folks doing bike commuting and taking the bus and the other types of activities that folks are are, are doing in their daily life. And so I'm glad we got that part right. Right. There's no worse feeling than having to go mid-commute. You're saying that this addresses that for some. Where did this idea to go mobile come from? I know this has been tried like in San Francisco. Yes. And I I actually got to credit the community for this one. Um, St. John's Cathedral parishioners were really concerned about the grounds of their church in the Capitol Hill neighborhood being used inappropriately, but they didn't want to take an enforcement approach. They came to us with these ideas and showed us pictures of San Francisco's mobile unit and said, can we work together on this kind of solution? The mayor's office was simultaneously working with neighbors in Ballpark who were looking at Portland Loos and really fancy models of permanent restrooms. And so this was the community bringing the idea to government and saying, hey, what can we do? Oh. What was happening on the church grounds simply that they were being used as outdoor bathrooms? Yes, by I very see. vulnerable residents. So as mentioned, access to public restrooms ended up being on the city's agenda in about 2015 after these complaints. I suppose another way to address them would have just been through law enforcement and, you know, increasing fines. And this is where, again, I credit the community in them saying, not only 
do we think that's not the right approach for folks who are really struggling? But we don't think it's going to work. There aren't enough police to be out here at the times of day and and to be finding folks. We get a few complaints by phone when that's happening, but so often it's quick, it's hard to enforce. So, so I think the goal of everyone involved was how do you prevent this? And you think about it in a way that really addresses a broader community approach. That other voice we heard from the city just a few moments ago made this almost sound like a human rights issue for the city. Would you say that? Is that overstating it? I think it is. I think also it's a public infrastructure piece. I think they think about it the way we do street sweeping and streetlights and you know, having a, a seat near a bus stop. And so so it's both the loftiness of human rights, but it's also the basics of this is what good government does. The attendants, one of whom we met, are make are there to make sure there's no loitering and to respond, you know, to a medical emergency if there is one. And the city has added attendants as well to permanent bathrooms uh, at Skyline Park, for instance. There's a, some talk of doing that at other locations as well. You've learned, I guess, that these attendants play a critical role, but how sustainable is it? Because it's expensive. You have to pay them. I think it is one of the challenges in this program. We know it's a formula for success. It helps communities feel more comfortable about integrating a restroom for the the folks who live nearby these locations. Why? Because I think their idea is you have eyes on the street. Anytime you have someone who's watching what's going on, just watching is prevention. And, you know, I think just like you mentioned, being able to call for help if needed and the cleanliness factor, the idea that there isn't going to be trash, that these are going to be well-maintained areas. So, Otherwise, these might be spaces that get misused. I think you're saying. What we've learned in other cities is that if you get a high enough number of users at a very frequent pace, in some ways you can get to some self-regulation. So you think about tourist areas in San Francisco on the docks where you have thousands of people going by every minute. That kind of environment might be one where you can sustain something without a constant attendant because there's so many people coming and going. Mm-hmm. But if we're if we're not there yet, I think the attendants are going to be important for, for at least the foreseeable future. But you are right. Cost is an issue. And this, that's Part of the pilot is how to balance those those two competing needs. We're talking about these mobile restrooms that have been hopscotching the city of Denver. And my guest is Denver City Councilman Robin Kanich. Uh, of course, Denver residents will be voting soon on a major bond issue. Would, would any of the money go towards restrooms in particular? At this point, there's not a specific line item for the restroom, but what we've learned from the pilot is this works best when you integrate things, and the bond does include two really important projects. The mayor has been very dedicated to mobility and making sure people have choices, and so one place we're doing that is the 16th Street Mall, how to improve the bus, pedestrian, bike interactions on that corridor. Same on the Colfax corridor. We're looking at high-speed bus. So rather than thinking about the restroom in an isolation, we're going to be thinking about planning it along with those transportation improvements. Where is there a stop for the bus? Where is there a bike rack? Where is there a bathroom? And both of those corridors, the 16th Street Mall and Colfax, are uh, provided for in the bond issue. So you're saying it's, it's not that there's specific money for bathrooms, but this is part of the larger thinking. As we said, one of the goals with the mobile bathrooms is to figure out where to put permanent facilities. So where are they best placed so that people actually use them? What have you learned about the placement of restrooms? I'm just curious, like, I don't know, you move them a few blocks and all of a sudden use goes up 200 percent. 
we have learned that uh, everyone has to go, but there's a limit how far people will walk to go. Okay. <laughs> and so, so yes, we have learned that if you move the unit just a little bit off of Colfax, just a little bit off the 16th Street Mall, you get a dramatic drop in usage that it really does matter if it's right where people are walking by. We've learned that there are utility concerns, right? If we're going to be doing uh, sewer and electrical hookup, really thinking strategically about where that uh, location works and what the cost is. We've learned about things like visibility. How do you make sure that you're visible and seen in a, in a busy urban environment with a lot of things going on? So all of that has helped us. Um, we were very dedicated to ensuring we had disability access in our restroom. That was something we did differently than San Francisco. Their unit's much smaller. It's much easier to play. But our unit has a ramp so that everyone with every mobility concern can use it. And that takes up space. Back to the the cost of this and why the the city should pay for it. Um, I I think of where these are placed and how close they are to tons of other restrooms, largely that are in office towers and restaurants. Why not partner, say, with private business to make restrooms available than investing huge amounts of money in first, the mobile restrooms, and then second, uh, potentially permanent structures. I have to really credit the business community in our city. I think they've stepped up for years, and some of them quietly and some of them more openly allowing folks from the public to use their businesses. But many of those folks aren't customers. We know. we've. Uh, I'm a mom. I've been with my son in a store that I have no intention of making a purchase with and begging to use the bathroom because mm-hmm. I've got a kiddo who's got to go. And I think that's really asking the business community to step up and, and serve a public function. I think they have concerns about maintenance. They have concerns about liability. And I think that we have now as a government, as a public city, encourage folks to get out of their cars and bike and get out of their cars and walk. And if we're going to be encouraging that, we need to step up as well and say we're part of the solution. I hope there may be a way we can work and support businesses more to to be able to use their spaces in ways that address their concerns and help us. But we have to be in this this role if we're going to be encouraging this use of our streets. The placement of restrooms, the, the things that you are responsible for as a city council person. Thanks for being with us, Robin. Thanks for having me, Robin. Denver City Council Member Robin Kanich on the city's public restroom efforts. Some people in Colorado disrespect the outdoors. They ignore warnings like don't swim here, no dogs allowed, and don't feed the wildlife. In a few minutes, we'll meet a man who uses social media to shame these people. First, fair warning, a story about an even stinkier kind of rule-breaking. Human waste has overwhelmed the Forest Service at a hugely popular spot, Conundrum Hot Springs, outside Aspen. CPR's Sam Brash reports on how the agency responds. When I get to the Conundrum Trailhead, there's a certain smell overpowering the fresh air and the wildflowers. There's lots of human waste issues here at the trailhead, which is unfortunate for these volunteers to have to clean up. That's Aaron Hussman, a trainer with Leave No Trace. The nonprofit teaches wilderness ethics and hygiene. It recently led a cleanup day at the trailhead. How much stuff did you find and pick up? Uh, There was at least one full garbage bag full of human waste. The poop problem continues up the eight-mile trail to Conundrum Hot Springs. Last month, Leave No Trace partnered with the Forest Service to clean up the area and to talk to people who use it. All right. I say we start up. I talk with Katie Nelson on the hike up. 
She's with the Forest Service and helps manage the Maroon Bell Snowmass Wilderness, which contains Conundrum. Almost 5,000 people camped near the hot springs last year, some for multiple nights. To be quite frank, that's a lot of poop. As we hike, Nelson says the normal recommendation that backpackers bury their waste hasn't worked here. There's not enough places to dig cat holes. There's a, a high amount of visitation. There's water everywhere, so you just have these stacked challenges. So Nelson has had to get comfortable talking to strangers about backcountry bowel movements. I've tended to shy away from saying, what are you going to do when you poop out here? The correct answer to that question is the wag bag. It's a silver mylar sack with an inner plastic liner. Hikers can get them for free at the trailhead. And so you open it up, and the great thing, it comes with Toilet paper? That's Danielle Stevens, another Leave No Trace trainer. She teaches a couple of hikers how to use the bag. Business goes inside, enzymes kill any pathogens, and a Ziploc seal contains the smell. We'd love to, like, give you guys two each, if that's okay. We'll totally take them. Further up the trail, one of the hikers, Amelia Pellegrini, emerges from the woods victorious with a used bag. Yeah, it's cool. (laughs) Changed my life. (laughs) Changed my hiking life. Now what to do with it, though, is like... Pellegrini attaches it to her pack. If all goes as the Forest Service hopes, she'll hike it out and drive it to a trash can. The bags are now highly recommended for the conundrum area. Under a proposed management plan, they could be mandatory starting next summer. Those without bags would face a yet-to-be-determined fine. Our hike ends at the hot springs, and it's pretty clear why the place is so popular. Craigie Peaks tower over the natural alpine hot tub. Thirteen people are soaking when we arrive. Some have bathing suits, some are naked. Jenny Gilfus and Caleb Wong are here from Maryland to celebrate their engagement. We heard a lot of conflicting things. Like, it was, it's a beautiful hike, and then we've also heard that it's filled with lots of trash, and there's a lot of people up there. Mm-hmm. A party scene. Rangers say the area can get rowdy on the weekends. They've seen people bring in Weber grills and boom boxes. But right now, Gilfus says... It's beautiful and worth it (laughs) and the best thing. (laughs) I decide to conduct an unscientific poll. How are you dealing with human waste? Wag bags. Wag bag? Can I get a show of hands for wag bags? Only four out of 13. The rest say they're burying their human waste, but would give the bags a shot. Two, three, four. On the hike back, the cleanup crew counts their accomplishments. Uh, I buried three human wastes. I buried four yesterday. Ten piles of human waste. They joke about the numbers with a song. Nine packed out poops. Eight to TP. Seven low impact campsite. Six ten stakes. Five fire rings. Back at the ranger station, Nelson weighs the total collected trash. It's a way to see if public education efforts might be working. Last year, the first trip into Conundrum, we hiked 60 pounds of garbage out. Cool, let's see what this is. Okay, so putting it all on, 21 pounds. So that's an improvement over this time last year. She says the reduction could be a fluke, but... Perhaps people are learning to treat it better, that's what I hope. Still, the Forest Service faces a tough task. It feels noble to hike out your trash. It's a lot grosser to pack out your poop. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News.
All right, that's how the Forest Service deals with waste in the wilderness. Our next guest takes a different approach. He operates Trail Trash of Colorado. It's an Instagram account that, quote, names and shames bad behavior in the outdoors. Pictures of people who walk across a log in Hanging Lake near Glenwood Springs, or who feed wildlife, or bring dogs where they're not allowed. This account started about three months ago. It has almost 10,000 followers. But the man who runs it is unsure of his strategy and may shut it down. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, anytime. I want to say that you agreed to this interview on the condition of anonymity. Why not put your name out there? Well, um, you know, this is something I've been thinking about. And if you had asked me that a month or two ago, what I would have told you was that the whole the whole concept's not about me. It's about the outdoors. It's not something that, like, I want to draw attention to me. Like, hey, look at me. I'm doing this. But currently, there are a lot of people who are pretty angry with me. And uh, really, all it is is I don't want people showing up at my house. I don't want people stopping me in the street and confronting me about this. So it's... You know, this all started as like a side project to me. It was never meant to be something super serious. And uh, it sounds like you're actually surprised by uh, the attention it has gained. Oh, absolutely. So I started this just uh, as kind of an outlet for me to kind of fire back at these people who are using social media, not to respect the outdoors, but they're um, th- there's people out there who who just uh, they're like in this selfie culture and all they want is they want to go get a picture of themselves doing something awesome outdoors. And they don't care what the impact is. They don't care if they're breaking the rules. They don't care if they're jumping over signs. They don't care. They just want that shot. So this was just a thing to uh, kind of fire back at those people. And it's really snowballed out of my control at this point. Out of your control. You said that you wanted to remain anonymous because you didn't want to be confronted by people at, at your home, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I don't want people coming to my house. I, I'm not yet, the only person that lives there. There's other people there. And yet your whole Instagram account is about confronting people. Yeah, it's and, kind and of so hypocritical, so, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I'm going to use your own word there, yeah. hypocritical. Is it? Uh, Maybe. You know, I've been thinking about it, and one of my arguments for why it's not is because a lot of these people who are ending up on the account, their only purpose in posting these pictures in the first place is they want to get attention. And I'm going to give them the attention, because whether or not Because they're it's what posting they themselves right. out there. Right. You're scouring social media, other Instagram accounts, which are presumably kind of geotagged, mm-hmm. and then compiling those yeah so they're they're putting it out there themselves they put it out into the public domain it's public for everyone to see and i'm just bringing it to light um now do, do you to... do anything do you obscure faces do you yeah i actually wanted to talk about that because um in recent weeks it's become pretty clear to me that it can't really continue the way it is i've actually started obscuring the names so that people can't just click on the name and start sending them hate mail because uh, uh, an interesting thing happened ever since this has been gaining popularity. You know, it's been getting more followers. It's been getting more comments. And some of the comments are just downright disgusting. And, you know, like I said, this is a side project for me. I don't have the time to moderate this at the level where which I'm filtering through comments. So I just have shut the comments off on a lot of these posts. 
And an interesting thing happened the other day. Uh, I had posted a picture of some young woman on the log. And, you know, it started out as playful mockery, which is kind of where I wanted it to go in the first place. You know, just like, hey, look at you, you big idiot. You're on the log. You know, don't do that. And by the way, there's a sign that says, don't go on the log. Yeah. It's so, not like you can plead ignorance here. No, no, you can't. It's it's pretty obvious. Most people know that you're not supposed to go out there. Uh, but what happened is uh, she took it pretty well, and she had issued an apology, and people continued to berate her, and people continued to just say some of the meanest things that you could say to a person about it. So I, I said, okay, that's enough. And I shut the comments off. Uh, Later on in the day, I got a message from her, and she said, just to let you know, ever since you shut the comments off, A, people have taken to just private messaging me, and B, they can't see that I apologize, so they're now sending me, me, you know, hate mail and death threats and stuff like that, and... uh, Actual death threats? Yeah. And one thing I've asked is... um, There's been a few people who have contacted me about this who, you know, their pictures have showed up on there and they say, hey, I'm getting death threats about this. And I said, hey, look, just send me a screenshot of it. I'll make sure that these people get blocked. Um, I think that these people are not really happy to talk to me. So I haven't gotten it, but it's really not a risk that I'm willing to take at this point. So after I had that conversation with her, I decided, okay, I can't be, you know, when it was 100 followers... Sure. But it's, uh, I think it's getting close to 10,000 now, and uh, people just take it way too far. Is anyone suing you? I hope not. Not that I know of. Have they threatened to? Yeah. And I just basically ignore it. Have you looked into getting a lawyer? Uh, No. No, I haven't. Um, I hope that I don't need to. But, I mean, my argument would be that if you're putting this stuff out in the public domain, then that's kind of your fault. The work has had uh, some real consequences in, in terms of achieving the goals that you want. So Liquido Active, a Brazilian sportswear company, paid fines after you exposed an illegal photo shoot that they did it at Hanging Lake. They had models mm-hmm. posed across the log. Yeah. Is that a win for you? I, I think so. Um, you know, I never I never set out on this to get people in trouble. To wait, really? Isn't that the whole point? Um, I mean, I I guess it kind of is. You, but you say it's name and shame. Yeah, I was trying to stop this culture of you know people going out and wrecking the outdoors for that perfect shot. I guess I let me say that I never thought that it would uh, get to the point where people are actually getting fined because of me, but. If uh, professional brands need to know that they can't just go out and walk past a sign and do exactly the opposite for for an advertising campaign. I mean, the National Forest Service does require permits for commercial photo shoots. And I think it's pretty obvious everybody here knows you're not allowed in the water. So when you're going to, if you're going to try to use images like that for your brand, that's just not okay. Are you doing the work of law enforcement in some regards? Um, you know, I have been contacted by certain county sheriff's departments in regards to some of the posts. One was uh, some young lady had put her name on the rocks. She was scratching her name in the rocks. 
And uh, that picture, actually, a hiker took that picture and sent it to me. So that person didn't even post themselves on Instagram. Mm. That came from a third party. You posted it? Yeah. Somebody had sent me this message with the picture, and they said, look, this is where I live, and people are coming out here and wrecking stuff. So I, I, I put it up there, and immediately... Um, the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department sends me a message like, hey, do you know who this is? Do you know where it was? And I, I said, no, but I can put you in contact with the person who sent it to me. And she ended up getting ticketed, which I think... Um, the person who scratched her name. Yeah. Um, and I actually felt bad about that because I don't know how old this girl was. She looked like she was 18 to 20 something. Um, and now she's got something on her record because of something I posted. And I, I truly feel bad about that. If it was up to me, it would have been more of a situation where they were like, hey, go clean this up. But instead, she got a ticket for graffiti. So it's something where, you know, I need to think more about the consequences of this. You know, it's gotten pretty out of control. Like, people are taking this farther than it was ever intended to go. You talk about thinking about this. I wonder what you're thinking about the future of this Instagram account, Trail Trash of Colorado. Yeah, and, and that's, um, you know, an interesting thing on that. Ever since uh, I started blurring people's names out, people have been sending me a lot of messages who are extremely dissatisfied. And, you know, they say that now it's pointless. If we can't see the names of these people, what is the point? I've had people tell me that, well, now that you're blurring names out, you're just encouraging this behavior, which I think is pretty far from the truth. Because you think faces are enough. You think that's enough of a public shaming. Yeah. And, you know, I want people to uh, I want people to know that they can't just go and flout the rules for Instagram selfies and not experience a backlash. On the other hand, the more popular it gets, the more severe the backlash gets. And there's this whole... Uh, uh, witch hunt mentality, which I, I really can't condone. So, Do you think you'll keep the account open? You know, I we're just going to have to see because it it's become very obvious to me that it cannot continue under its current model. Um, you know, because all it takes... I truly feel that all these people who are sending death threats are just internet trolls and they're, uh, they're just out to really wreck somebody's day. But... I also can't live with the possibility that somebody might actually go through with something and, you know, hurt somebody for real. That's that's not okay with me. I can't sponsor that. I can't live with that. So, um, I, I don't know. It might have to go away. I would feel bad about that, but I also, I can't, I can't ruin somebody's life over an Instagram selfie. It's just not worth it. You talk about trolls yeah is it possible that you've lured trolls in with the the tone of the account you it's know, naming uh, and shaming and, and and referring i guess the title really refers when you say trail trash you're talking about the people oh yeah you know let, let's get one thing clear i i i pick up actual trash on the trails and i advocate for picking up trash on the trails and nothing nothing bothers me more than going out on some nice high alpine hike and there's just crap on the side of the trail. But am I right to say that in the title, Trail Trash, you're referring to the people? Absolutely. Okay. So has that tone set the tone 
for an environment that apparently now is leading to death threats? Uh, you know, that's quite possible. I'm from the East Coast, and the culture out there is a little bit different. I'm kind of a cynical, sarcastic type guy. You're from Philly. Well, I'm from the suburbs of Philly. If you say that you're from Philly and you're not, you get into a lot of trouble. But I have that Philly mentality, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of sarcasm and cynicism on there, which I think is lost on a lot of people, and they take it a little bit more seriously than it's meant to be taken. Um, And I've even made posts about this. Um, There's a post on there, and it's got, like, the green barf guy emoji, and it's, it's like a plea for people to please just tone it down a little bit. And it didn't work. This, too, in some regards, got out of hand, beyond where you thought it would go. Yeah. I think people are starting to put it on a pedestal. I'm, I'm not this all-knowing, all-seeing, outdoor, like, one-man army. I'm just a guy who's had enough. You know, a lot of people leave comments, which I think is funny, because a lot of people leave comments here, and they're like, oh, these transplants are ruining the outdoors. They're destroying everything that we, you know, know and love in Colorado. Well, I'm a transplant. I came here for the outdoors. Um, and so this us versus them, the the people who've been here a certain amount of time versus those who haven't, you think it in a way is a false... I think it's ridiculous. Uh-huh. That is the creator of Trail Trash of Colorado, the Instagram account names and shames people who break the rules outdoors. He spoke with us on condition of anonymity. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Chef Matt Schauser made someone cry recently. Not because he's mean, but because his food and the ambiance he creates around it are so good, apparently, that it induces tears. We like to play with food, whether it's the way that we present it or aromas that we put with it. We just we want it to be fun. Chaucer is executive chef at High Lonesome Ranch near the tiny Mesa County town of Debec. He puts together multi-course meals, and I'm talking 24 courses. Denver Post food writer Allison Reedy was a guest at one of these mega dinners held at the remote, remote guest ranch, that is. And Allison, welcome to the program. Thank you. So your Denver Post review indeed began with the admission that you cried because the food was so good. You were you were yes. boo hooing there right at the table. I was not sobbing at the dinner table. No, not quite. But yeah, there were there were tears in my eyes. It was it was a little emotional. Why? Well, food is the love of my life. Um, I'm sure all the alcohol pairings with the 24 courses didn't hurt with the tears, but it was just such an amazing, impressive dinner. And there I was on this ranch in this tiny town of Debec, three and a half hours west of Denver, eating the best meal of my life. And it just, it kind of all came together. I just kept looking around thinking, this is incredible. Before we get into the particulars of the meal, which you just said was the best of your life, I'd like you to describe High Lonesome Ranch. Uh, indeed, you you drove some three hours to this place you'd really never heard of, having no idea what to expect. And, and what did you find when you arrived? Yeah, the ranch was beautiful. Um, it's what you would expect from a, a Colorado ranch with there are some hills and they're not exactly in the mountains, but there were deer. We went for a hike. Um, saw a lot of deer. We stayed in a beautiful guest house. It's just, it's a cute little charming place. And does the food all come from somewhere near where you were? 
I, I believe that a lot of the food comes from the ranch itself. Um, we toured their greenhouse, so I know that they're growing a lot of food over there. I think they raised some of the animals. I know that they had caught the trout that we ate just that day in the brook. Mm. So most of the food is coming from that area. How many people were with you around that table? I believe there were 12 of us. Okay. All from Metro Denver or what? <laughs> no, uh, my husband and I were the only ones there from Denver. There was a conservation guy from Michigan, and then everyone else was from Grand Junction or right around there. And I, I was just shocked because in Denver, it seems like we're always trying to one-up each other for the best, most unique dining experiences. And nobody in Denver has heard of this place. But you had heard of the chefs behind it, hadn't you? I didn't know the names. I certainly knew the restaurants. Um, Matt is from Alinea, which is one of the very best restaurants in the country. And Patrick is from Canlis in Seattle. Alinea, that, is that the one in Chicago where you have like shrimp foam and stuff like that? <laughs> yeah, they do a lot of molecular gastronomy there. Yes. Okay. And he's now connected with this Colorado uh, ranch and restaurant, I guess. Yeah, he's now the, the head chef at High Lonesome Ranch. Any idea how he ended up there? How those two ended up there? Yeah, that was that was my big question for them, was how did you leave these top restaurants in these big cities and end up in Debec? And the answer was similar for both of them. They, they're young guys. They're in their early 30s. And they just wanted to raise their kids in a, in a smaller town. They wanted a slower pace of life. So when it came time to start their families... They, they wanted something slower. I think like the only other eating establishment is a Subway sandwich shop in town. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think I saw a Subway at the gas station. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Denver Post food writer Allison Reedy. She was a guest recently at an impressive dinner at a remote ranch on Colorado's Western Slope. And in a piece recently in the Post, she wrote that it brought her to tears. Uh, it's the best meal she thinks of her life. And, and so you sat down at, at the high lonesome dining table, uh, knowing that I, I guess you were going to be served these 24 courses. You call yourself a relentless eater, but is, are 24 courses daunting? I didn't really know what to expect. I had had multi-course dinners before, but nothing nothing in the 20s. <laughs> um, I do have a pretty big appetite, so I wasn't too worried about it. Okay. Uh, here is Chef Chaucer describing how he plans that many courses. We want people to take those first few bites, absolutely love what they're tasting, want more, but we're going to move on to the next one, and hopefully it's just as fresh, just as exciting as the last. So it's not like 24 entrees, I guess. No, they. I would say maybe three or four bites per course. So we have to talk about the food itself. Uh, in your piece about this dinner in the Denver Post, you especially took note of the second course, morsels that you described as maybe the best few bites of food you had ever eaten. What was that course? Yes, that was probably my favorite course. Um, so the second course, they brought out this glass of, it was barely filled with a white chilled coconut curry. And in the curry, there was also some spot prawn ceviche and some chunks of mango. And then across the top, they had lemongrass, but they turned the lemongrass into a whisk. And inside the whisk was kind of interwoven this fried head-on spot prawn. So it had 
had his head, it had all his little appendages, all crispy. And then you take the lemongrass whisk with the, the fried prawn, and then you mix it up in the curry that was at the bottom of the glass. And then you kind of take it all in one bite. And so you're getting that mango, you're getting the, the raw prawn, the crispy prawn, the, the chilled coconut curry, and, the, and some of the essence of the lemongrass. And it just all came together, and it was amazing. A lemongrass Whisk. I'm trying to picture yes. how they, but that that involved, in other words, some culinary construction. I guess. Oh my goodness! Yes, the whole meal did. They they there was another course where they took a a fried soft shell crab and they molded it to look like a swan. I mean, they are doing amazing artistic things there. Hmm. So some local ingredients, but it wasn't Colorado crab or no, shrimp. No, it wasn't I'm all Colorado, no. What are some other courses that caused you to use superlatives like flabbergasted and dumbstruck? <laughs> um, well, it seemed like most people's favorite was the lobster and caviar cook course. Um, It was also paired with a really amazing champagne. And the lobster and the caviar were kind of mixed with melted butter to form this really rich, decadent pudding almost. Um, There was also some amazing beef that was served on a a stone that they had put in the fire to kind of... the, the hot stone just barely cooked that that beef, so it was super tender, huh. um, very rare. And then I also love the trout that they had caught that day on property, and they smoked it with juniper and sagebrush. And then they served it on a plate with a kind of a glass dome. And when they removed the dome, all of the smoke came out of that. And you just got, you got the aroma of that juniper and the sage, and it was great. Mm. Is this fussy food? You know, it. I, I tend to not like the fussy food. And it's it's hard to describe all this and not have it be fussy because we're talking <laughs> lobster and caviar, right? And yeah. smoke and deconstructed dishes. Um, but it, it didn't feel fussy. And a lot of times when you're eating the, the, the fussy, the fancy, frou-frou food, you, you, aren't, you aren't super comfortable. And this was still very comfortable and still tasty. Um, it wasn't it wasn't over-the-top fancy white tablecloth. It's a big deal for a food writer to talk about the best meal of her life. Can you help us understand what that means? I think it was just the entire experience, and I'm sure the unexpectedness of it contributed to that because I didn't know what to expect going to this ranch in the middle of nowhere. Um, I just didn't expect that. And so the the experience of the artistry of how beautiful this food was, but more important is the taste and everything. It was so inventive and it, it was combinations and things that I hadn't had before and things that I certainly wasn't having in Denver. And that's just, that's what made it so surprising and so great. So how much did this meal in Debec cost? And and can other food lovers experience what you experienced? Yes, but it's not a cheap meal. Um, it is, it's about $400, the oh, one that I attended, which was a collaboration dinner between Patrick, who was, he was the chef at the ranch, I think maybe in 2013, 2014. Um, and then Matt, who took over once Patrick left to open his restaurant, Cloverdale in Steamboat Springs. And so it was a collaboration between the two former chefs, and that was about $400. It also includes a night at the ranch and your brunch the next morning. So it's not just the dinner, but it is not a cheap dinner. I understand the next one's going to be about 475 a person. 
But is is there like a waiting list? What's I mean, how easy would it be to get into one of these? You know, I think that once my story went up, they sold out the first one pretty quick. But mm. I, I think Matt wants to be doing these once a month. So I'm sure if you call the ranch, they would be happy to sell you that $475 dinner. Are you going to return? I'm a newspaper writer, so I don't know that I can afford this very often. Uh-huh. But I would love to someday. Well, thank you for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you. Alison Reedy is a food writer at the Denver Post. She talked to us about this uh, rather extravagant meal that she had in Debet, Colorado, on the Western Slope at the High Lonesome Ranch. Drones are causing big headaches for firefighters. The remote-controlled aircraft pose a danger to pilots combating wildfires. And that has land managers pleading with the public to mind their drones. CPR's Mike Lamp spoke with Jennifer Jones of the U.S. Forest Service. What kind of things have your pilots and firefighting crews encountered there in the air? So far this year, we've had 17 documented instances of unauthorized drone flights over or near wildfires in nine states, including Colorado. And that's resulted in aerial firefighting operations being temporarily shut down at least 14 times. And that includes a couple of times on the Lightner fire near Durango a couple of weeks ago. And you're a pilot flying one of these tankers that drops water and chemicals on the fire. Are, are these drones like in your vicinity? Do you do the pilots do they see them up there? Do they interfere with the flight? Members of the public are supposed to fly their drones at a 400 feet above the ground level or less. That is the same airspace that air tankers are dropping fire retardant in, helicopters are dropping water in, and we have other aerial firefighting aircraft. So safety in aerial firefighting really depends on knowing what other aircraft are in the airspace and what they're going to do. And when a drone shows up, the pilots uh, see a drone, there's a potential for a mid-air collision or for that pilot to become distracted and accidentally crash. And these drones themselves are not small. If they were damaged and crashed, that could be a problem too. There's also the potential for a drone to lose a communication link and fall from the sky and injure or even kill firefighters on the ground. When you have a drone interfering with a fire scene, can you tell who's flying it? If we can identify the person and catch up with them, a member of the public flying an unauthorized drone over a wildfire could face fines of up to $20,000 or criminal prosecution. So it's very serious. You ask people not to fly drones around fires. Do you think that people are getting that message? I think it's just something that takes constant education. You can see why someone, uh, you know, might be drawn to a fire with a drone because it would make a good picture. And to me, that's that's really would be so tragic if someone was out there just trying to get a good photo or a video or something like that, and they were to cause an accident that seriously injured or killed firefighters. So you've got a crew flying over a wildfire, and somebody either on the ground or in one of those planes sees a drone, and pretty much immediately your flights are canceled. Your uh, aircraft are grounded, right? 
If we detect an unauthorized drone flying over or near a wildfire, we will temporarily ground that aircraft until we're confident that the drone has left the area and that it won't be coming back. And then we're also going to start working with local law enforcement and trying to track the the operator down to make sure that they are, you know, aware that they're not supposed to be doing that and to take appropriate action after that. Ah. Do you all use drones yourselves in kind of mapping fire areas? It's, it's such a great tool for photography. It would seem like it would have some application to what you're doing. We have been exploring uh, using drones in fire management over the last couple of years. We are certainly interested in using drones ourselves for a variety of fire management purposes, whether that's mapping, whether it's launching a drone to provide kind of a continuous live feed to firefighters on the ground, potentially fire detection. There's a whole range of uses that agencies might be able to use drones themselves for. Sometimes we do get the question, well, how come it's okay for you guys to fly them and members of the public can't? And the answer to that is that, again, safety in aerial firefighting depends on knowing what other aircraft are in the area and what they're going to be doing. And so if we are flying drones ourselves for fire management, they're carefully integrated through the air operations staff with that other air traffic that's flying. So it's known that they're there, it's known what they're doing, and that's all coordinated. That's just not the case when a member of the public flies a drone over a fire. Are you aware of any near misses, uh, near collisions between uh, your firefighting aircraft and drones? You know, not that I could really cite off the top of my head. I mean, every time that an unauthorized drone has been detected over near a fire, it's a serious situation. That is Jennifer Jones of the U.S. Forest Service speaking with my colleague Mike Lamp. Finally today, when the Fort Collins hip-hop collective Right Minded got together, it was supposed to be a one-time thing but their chemistry was just too good to make it temporary. Last year, Right Minded, that's spelled W-R-I-T-E, released their debut album to rave reviews. The group was also offered a spot on this season's America's Got Talent, which they declined. That offer came after a producer for the show saw their YouTube video for this song, Perfect Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life and never 
everlasting battle to find magic in the mind. Feel the when I'm riding the rhythm, I gotta give it all to me. My heart beats for one reason. Make Perfect day from the Fort Collins Hip Hop Collective, Right Minded. That's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Sam Brash. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News. Rather spend it with people washing away the pain like raindrops in the brain. I stay plotting and scheming, lost in the medicines. I'm following a dream and believing in me, leaving seeds now so later I can reap while my luck allows. On the deep down, telling me, compelling me to spread a message and the sea forever be elevating my energy. So-